the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you along for the ride. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we're going to talk with Hank Hanegraaff. He's the author of Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Life. Now, this is the Bible Answer Man, and what he's suggesting is knowing all the answers isn't enough. We'll talk with him about that about midway through this hour. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, Thomas Jipping will be my guest. He's the deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's also a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the Beckett Fund's Religious Freedom Index. It takes a little bit different approach to trying to gauge where we are as a nation in terms of religious freedom and its various aspects. And rather than look at government programs and government response to the free exercise of religion, they actually go to the people directly. So we'll talk with uh, Thomas Jipping about that. And uh, later in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Michael Allen Harrison. Uh, I don't know how this guy had time to do an interview because he's just everywhere doing everything. And he does a lot to uh, support various charitable organizations in our community. But his uh, annual, and I think this is the 29th year, Christmas at the Old Church is coming up. It opens tomorrow night, and that's a fundraiser for... um, Transitional Youth. So if you want to support that organization and enjoy a great evening of uh, Christmas music, that includes Michael Allen Harrison and friends, Julianne Johnson among them. Uh, that will be uh, starting up on Friday. There are 23 opportunities, so if you can't go on Friday, there are lots of other dates. You can find out more at Michael Allen, and that's A-L-L-E-N, MichaelAllenHarrison.com. Again, Christmas at the Old Church, starting once again in its 29th season on Friday. Taking a look at, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention on um, tomorrow, tomorrow at 11, um, I'm going to be, along with uh, my colleague here, I'm going to be at Pioneer Courthouse Square on the corner of Southwest Broadway and Yam Hill. They're calling it the Celebrity Bell Ringing. And while I'm not a celebrity, I'm going to be there with other celebrities ringing the bell and encouraging you to uh, to give to the Salvation Army. They've kind of fallen on some pretty hard times in terms of some of the publicity they've received lately that had, that was not fair. Uh, and I would really encourage you to come and support the uh, Salvation Army. I'm going to be among the bell ringers at 11 to 12. And if you can't make it then, I think our friends from our sister station, The Fish, will be ringing the bell from 1 to 2. So check us out and uh, help us raise some funds for the Salvation Army. Again, celebrity bell ringing this Thursday, 11 o'clock to noon. I'm going to be there with Mike Lee, and uh, we'll be at Southwest Broadway and Yam Hill. Uh, that's the corner of Pioneer Square. Our goal is to raise about $1,000. We'll see how well we do. So check that out. And by the way, right uh, in that area, there are some food carts. So you might want to come down and just you know have a little fun with us bell ringing. There'll be some carolers singing. And then who knows, you might want to pick up some lunch along the way. 
Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, President Trump told supporters at a rally in the key swing state of Pennsylvania on Tuesday night that he saw a silver lining in his impeachment. Hmm. Democrats approved the historic U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, or USMCA, to replace NAFTA because they're embarrassed by their own impeachment witch hunt. Well, I doubt that those two things are quite the way uh, he put them, but it is good news that there seems to be support among Democrats. Congress will soon vote on a new trade deal Trump announced at the rally, noting that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi did it on the same day they announced that they're going to impeach the 45th president of the United States, of course, referring to himself and your favorite president. And the reason they announced it on the same day, one hour later, they announced the impeachment. You know why it plays down the impeachment because they're embarrassed by impeachment. And our poll numbers have gone through the roof because of her stupid impeachment, end quote. I might have put it differently, but nonetheless, that was the quote. Tuesday was the momentous day in Trump's presidency, one of the high, the big highs and lows after House Democrats unveiled two articles of impeachment against the president. They also handed him a breakthrough political victory by finally approving his USMCA trade deal, another promise he could say he fulfilled in his presidency. And Trump may have a point about Democrats wanting to avoid discussion about the impeachment. Recent polls have indicated waning support for the effort, plus approving the agreement gave House Democrats, particularly those from more conservative districts, a useful talking point when they head home for the holidays. Uh, Speaker Pelosi emphasized the deal's importance to American workers. Still, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell took fire from House Democrats on Tuesday, saying that he will wait until after Trump's impeachment trial is over before bringing the USMCA to the Senate floor for a vote. We'll continue to follow that story. Well, the Pentagon on Tuesday suspended more than 850 Saudi students from flight training in response to the deadly shooting by a Saudi student last Friday at Naval Air Station Pensacola in Florida. Senior defense officials announced the suspension was part of a broader Defense Department review of all international training on U.S. military bases after Friday's massacre. The official said all 852 Saudi military students will be immediately confined to classroom training while all operations operational training in the air, land and sea will pause. Jarrett Cole, the star pitcher who helped the Houston Astros beat the Yankees in a six-game AL a championship series, has agreed to a $324 million nine-year contract with the Bronx Bombers, according to the Associated Press. The person spoke on condition of anonymity because the agreement had not yet been announced. The Yankees and Cole did not mention anything on Twitter after the AP's report. The New York Post also reported the deal. The Los Angeles uh, uh, Angels and Dodgers near Cole's home were also reportedly interested. Well, a Clinton-appointed judge has barred the Trump administration from building a border wall in the military, or rather with military funds. That, of course, is not the end of that story. And a New York judge has ruled in favor of Exxon in a climate change fraud case. Republicans are preparing to call no witnesses during the Senate impeachment trial, although president seems to want a trial with witnesses and the Senate will not take up the new NAFTA deal after it um, after this year. Well, will not take up the deal this year, uh, declares Mitch McConnell. The president's uh, nominee for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has been confirmed by the Senate and is openly gay. And Trump has signed an executive order combating uh, anti-Semitism. We'll talk more about that later in the program.
U.S. has grounded the Saudi pilots and halted military training after the base shooting a week ago. And Defense Department Inspector General's office is going to probe the use of military personnel on the U.S.-Mexico border. They've declared uh, the um, they the 2019 word of the year by Merriam-Webster. That refers to a singular individual who identifies self-identifies as non-binary. More on that later in the program. And Greta Thunberg has been named Time Magazine's 2019 Person of the Year. And for the first time ever, Mohammed has made the list of top 10 baby names in America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our next segment, we'll talk with Hank Hanegraaff. Truth matters, life matters more. The unexpected beauty of an authentic life. Well, on this day in history, 1936, Britain's King Edward VIII abdicates the throne so he can marry an American divorcee, Wallace Warfield Simpson. His brother, Prince Albert, becomes King George VI. And the rest, of course, is history. On this day in 1937, Italy withdraws from the League of Nations. 1941, Germany and Italy declare war on the United States. The United States responds in kind. On this day in history, 1961, a U.S. aircraft carrier transporting Army helicopters arrives in Saigon, the first direct American military support for South Vietnam's battle against communist guerrillas. And on this day in 1972, Apollo 17's lunar module lands on the moon with astronauts Eugene uh, Cernan and Harrison Schmidt aboard. They become the last two men to date to step onto the lunar surface. And in 1980, President Jimmy Carter signs legislation creating a $1.6 billion environmental super fund to pay for cleaning up chemical spills and toxic waste dumps. In 2009, or excuse me, 2001, the first criminal indictment stemming from 9-11, federal prosecutors charged Zacharias Moussaoui, a French citizen of Moroccan descent, with conspiring to murder thousands in the suicide hijackings. Moussaoui would plead guilty to conspiracy in 2005 and is serving a life sentence in prison. On this day in history, 2008, former NASDAQ chairman Bernie Madoff is arrested, accused of running a multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme that destroyed thousands of people's lives, savings, and wrecked charities. Madoff is serving a 150-year federal prison sentence. Also in 2008 on this date, the remains of missing Florida toddler Kaylee Anthony is found six months after she disappeared. Her mother, Casey Anthony, would be acquitted of murder in 2011. And finally, 2013, Time magazine selects Pope Francis as its Person of the Year, saying the Roman Catholic Church's new leader, the first from Latin America, changed the perception of the 2,000-year-old institution in an extraordinary way in a short time. Well, Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz declared a failure by the entire chain of command involved in the FBI's initial Trump-Russia investigation in blistering testimony today that called out basic and fundamental errors at the Bureau while stressing that his newly released report on the probe does not vindicate anyone. The tone of the testimony during the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing ran counter to much of the coverage surrounding the report's release that zeroed in on a core finding that investigators found no evidence of political bias and were indeed justified in launching the 2016 probe. Horowitz reaffirmed that finding, touted by congressional Democrats eager to defend the probe at Wednesday's hearing, but his testimony was, as a whole amounted to a tough as, um, assessment of the Bureau's actions and clarified that his two-year review of the Russian probe or, um, probe's origins and use of Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrants to surveil a Trump campaign aide did not close the book on the bias question Either. Well, under questioning, Horowitz said that he could not outright determine whether bias was involved in the process of applying for a FISA warrant against the former Trump advisor Carter Page. 
Can you say it wasn't because of political bias? Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham asked. I do not know Horowitz answered. He also said he was not ruling it out regarding the possibility that bias influenced those decisions. He made the point that his review was much narrower than that of the review of Mr. Durham that will be released at some point in the future. In the run up to the reports release, a number of leak based media reports focused on the no bias finding, painting the picture of an IG report that largely would um, go easy on the FBI, but the actual document highlighted numerous errors and missteps in that process. While Horowitz himself was a highly critical, several GOP lawmakers argued today that the report was in no way an exoneration for the FBI, with Senator Mike Lee of uh, Utah calling that such claims crazy. Former FBI Director James Comey essentially claimed vindication on Monday, declaring in the wake of the report that the criticism of the Bureau's actions was all lies. An assertion Graham brought up on Wednesday. Is that a fair assessment of your report? Graham asked Horowitz, citing Comey's vindication claim. Horowitz bluntly replied, I think the activities we found here don't vindicate anybody who touched this, uh, this FISA. He did say, as the report reflected, that the so-called crossfire hurricane investigation was open for an authorized investigative purpose and with sufficient factual predication. Horowitz reiterated in his testimony that he did not find any documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the opening of the Bureau's Trump-Russia investigation or efforts to seek a FISA warrant to monitor Page. Horowitz said Wednesday that while he did not make a determination as to motive behind the efforts to obtain the FISA warrant for Page, he is referring the entire chain of command to the FBI and the Justice Department for further review of their performance failures. We are deeply concerned that so many basic and fundamental errors were made by three separate hand-picked investigative teams on one of the most sensitive FBI investigations after the matter had been briefed to the highest levels of the FBI, even though the information sought through the use of FISA authority related so closely to an ongoing presidential campaign. And even though those involved with the investigation knew that their actions were likely to be subjected to close scrutiny, Horowitz said in his opening statement before the committee, we believe this circumstance reflects a failure not just by those who prepared the FISA application, but also by the managers and supervisors in the crossfire hurricane chain of command, including FBI senior officials who were briefed as the investigation progressed, he said. Well, Horowitz's long-awaited report determined that the FBI compiled with, or rather complied with policies in launching the Trump-Russia investigation, but also flagged significant concerns with how certain aspects of the investigation were conducted and supervised. The inspector general said his team was has reviewed all, over one million records and conducted over 100 interviews, including several witnesses who only recently agreed to be interviewed as part of the nearly two year long investigation. His 476 page report faulted the FBI for numerous errors in that FISA process, identifying at least 17 significant inaccuracies and omissions. And as the House of Representatives begins drafting articles of impeachment against President Trump, two new national polls indicate a slight majority of Americans still oppose impeaching and removing the Republican president from office. American voters signal they are slightly more inclined not to impeach him than to impeach. Quinnipiac University polling analyst Tim Malloy noted. And the survey from Quinnipiac and Monmouth University overall indicate little movement in the minds of Americans on impeachment and on Trump's approval rating over the past month. This following dramatic public hearings by the House Intelligence and Judiciary Committees that culminated Tuesday with Democrats unveiling impeachment articles alleging Trump abused the power of his office and obstructed the congressional investigation into his alleged wrongdoing. 
According to the Monmouth poll, which was released today, 50 percent of the president, 50 percent said the president should not be impeached and removed from office, with 45 percent calling for impeachment and removal from the White House. The numbers are little changed from Monmouth's November poll when 51 percent to 44 percent majority opposed impeaching and removal. Opinion on impeachment has been rock steady since news of the Ukraine call first broke. Any small shifts we're seeing now are likely to be statistical noise. Patrick Murray of Monmouth University Polling Institute uh, emphasized it's a similar story in Quinnipiac survey, which was released on Tuesday by a 51, 45 percent margin. Americans opposed impeaching and removing the president. Little changed from the school's late November poll. The full House of Representatives is expected to vote on the articles of impeachment in the coming days, maybe as early as next week, with a Senate trial likely to be held next month. After the holiday break, the president's uh, facing impeachment over his July 25th call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, in which he urged Zelensky to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, over their dealings in the eastern uh, country of Ukraine. Biden is one of the top Democratic 2020 presidential contenders, hoping to challenge Trump in next year's election. Well, coming up in just a few moments, we're going to talk with Hank Hanegraaff. He is the author of many books. Today, we're talking about his latest, Truth Matters, Life Matters More. And the subtitle of the book is very telling, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. Now, this from the Bible Answer Man. So what is the point he is making? He is someone who is a stickler for accuracy and truth. So what does this mean that authentic Christian life matters as well? The unexpected beauty of it will be the subject of our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back with Hank Hanegraaff. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I am so delighted to have the opportunity to talk with Hank Hanegraaff about his latest book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. Well, Hank Hanegraaff has always argued passionately for the importance of biblical truth and biblical understanding. And through his long-running radio show, Bible Answer Man, his name has become synonymous with commitment to both theological rigor and an explanation of theological truth that is digestible for the lay believer. Well, in the first half of his latest book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life, he lays out the clear case for the importance of biblical truth in our time. In the unexpected second half, he explores biblical truth not as an end in itself, but as a pathway to illuminate truth, the personhood of God. Well, both um, precision and compassion are his approach, and the Bible is a map, he says, that God has given us to draw deeper into himself by focusing on six ideas, which we will talk about. Well, Hank Hanegraaff serves as the president and chairman of the board of the North Carolina-based Christian Research Institute. He's also host of a nationally syndicated radio broadcast, which is heard daily across the United States and Canada and around the world via the Internet at Equip.org. He is the author of more than 20 books, widely regarded as one of the world's leading Christian authors and apologists, uh, recognized um, uh, all around the world. I'm just delighted to welcome Hank Hanegraaff to the program to talk about his latest book, Truth Matters, the Unex- uh, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. Hank Hanegraaff, thank you so much for joining us. 
It is an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we're talking about one book, but we're really talking about two books that relate very closely to one another, that present a balanced view of the Christian life um, that I think might surprise some of our, our listeners in that the second half of the book focuses on a different aspect, but an essential aspect of the Christian life. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, in fact, uh, I can tell you read the book, <laughs> the characterization. But yeah, you know, for most of my life, I've debated truth, I've defended truth, I've defined truth, but the map is not the territory, nor is the menu the meal. The, the, the menu is designed to lead you into an experience with food, and that is precisely what I'm talking about in the second half of the book, how we can experience union with God, how we can participate in the very energies of God. You think about putting a pot in a kiln. The pot absorbs the energy of the fire. It becomes red hot in the process. It doesn't become the fire, but it absorbs the energies of the fire, and that's precisely what I'm talking about in the second half of the book, how we can experience intimacy with God, how we can experience fellowship in the Holy Trinity. And this is something to be experienced rather than explained. It's not a prohibition upon knowledge, but it is the transcending of knowledge. It's the transcending of all philosophical speculation. And that is really, and I love a quote by Vladimir Lossky, he said that Christian theology is always in the last resort a means, it's a unity of knowledge that subserves an end which transcends all knowledge, and that ultimate end is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about union with God or deification. Now, I've written about deification, as you well know, and deification in the cultic sense is something that we don't want to Mm -hmm. participate in as Christians. But what we do want to participate in is what Peter talks about in his second letter. He talks about being a partaker of the divine nature, which is something that we were created to do. I think it's it's, uh, much easier for some of us to read the first half of the book, to aspire to an understanding and knowledge of the truths in Scripture, and to stop there, missing essentially, as the second part of your book points out, really the whole point. Yes, and and, and this is, again, to quote Vladimir Lasky, one of the favorite quotes that I actually have inscribed on the back cover of the book where he says that after the fall, human history is a history of shipwreck awaiting rescue. But the port of salvation is not the goal. The goal is for the rescued to continue on a journey whose sole goal is union with God. Mm. Now, think about the metaphor. If you're on the Titanic and you're rescued, you'd be very, very grateful. But you don't want to stay in the port of salvation. You want to stay at the place of rescue. You want to continue on. And that's precisely what I'm writing about in this book. We were created for union with God. And so often we think that the essence of the Christian life is transactional. I pray a prayer. I have a card that gets me out of hell, gets me into heaven. And that's the extent of it. But 
Christ came to give us life that is life to the full, and it's something we can experience in the present. Now, it's something that we will experience for all eternity as well, and it's an ongoing experience from one glory to another with unveiled face, uh, to allude to how Paul puts it. But this is something that we can experience now, and I think most of us are missing that. And I could say for the better part of my life, I was missing that as well. Hmm. Now, what brought you to write these two books in one that emphasizes the necessity of moving, uh, not abandoning truth, but moving um, to a fuller truth that that re- uh, results in a relationship that is deepening and growing with the God who is the source of all truth? Yeah, interestingly enough, it, it started as a result of taking a stand for truth. Uh, there was a group that we thought uh, was at best cultic, and uh, in meeting with the leaders of that group, uh, I thought I, I that we were wrong. And in the process of, of, of saying we were wrong, standing for truth became my portal into life. I traveled uh, to places in Asia where I met people that did not have a modicum of the theological acumen that I have gained over many years of doing the Bible Answer Man broadcast, but they were experiencing something that I was not experiencing. And I remember flying home from China Mm. on one of my trips and staring off into the clouds and wondering, am I even a Christian? It's it's a sort of analogous to what happened to Aquinas. Uh, I don't know if you know the story, yes. but on December 6, 1273, I think it was, Thomas Aquinas had a Eucharistic experience. Now, this is the man that wrote the Summa, uh, one of the greatest theological works of all time. But he had a Eucharistic experience on that particular morning that absolutely rewired his circle. He's told his secretary, Reginald, I can write no more. Everything I've done so far seems to me as to be so much straw. And I had a similar experience. It was not quite as profound and instantaneous as the experience that's communicated by Thomas Aquinas, but it was that kind of experience as well. I had a Eucharistic experience, an experience with the energies of God that rewired my circuits. Mm. Now, let's talk about the first part of the book before I think we land in the second part. Truth matters. It still matters. It will always matter. How should we approach our desire to understand the truth as revealed in Scripture that ultimately leads us into a deeper relationship uh, with the God of the universe? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked the question that, uh, that, that you just did in the way that you asked it, because it, it's so important for us not to be dichotomaniacs. Uh, which is to say, Jesus Christ not only said he was the way to the Father, but he was the truth and the life. And so you, you can't separate one from the other. It's so important for Christians to know the truth, to go back to the illustration of uh, a menu and a meal. If you have the wrong menu, the meal may well be toxic. So you have to have truth. It's important for us to understand the God who spoke in the universe leapt into existence. It's it's important for us to have a proper apprehension of that. It's important for us to be able to read the Bible for all its substantial worth. It's important for us to understand the difference between a Christian worldview and a pagan worldview, or a worldview that is uh, rooted in cultic, theology or the the world of the occult. So truth really, really matters, and it particularly matters in a post-truth culture where people say truth is what I 
think it is, as opposed to being objective verity. So it's so critical that we have the truth about who God is. I mean, you think about Jesus Christ asking the mother of all questions, who do you say that I am? It, it, you know, if you have the wrong answer to that question, if you say, well, you're just an avatar or a messenger, or uh, you're the spirit brother of Lucifer, and then you have the wrong God. So it's very important that the Christian ethic is focused and grounded in substantial truth. We're talking with Hank Hanegraaff, his latest book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments and perhaps park on the second half of his book, uh, which is titled Life Matters More. And uh, I think we'll find it rather fascinating to consider this aspect from the Bible answer man of a life lived uh, in relationship to God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Continuing my conversation with Hank Hanegraaff, most widely known as the Bible Answer Man, author of many books. Today we're talking about his latest, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. Now, you mentioned a few moments ago uh, that you began to live an authentic Christian life, which isn't to suggest that you were not a, a follower of Jesus before, but how did life change once you began to truly live an authentic Christian life? And what, what differences um, did, uh, did you have to face in order to live that more authentic Christian life? Well, I think the first thing that should be said in response to that question is the importance of the church. Uh, it has been well said by the, the church fathers that you cannot have God is your father without having the church as your mother. And so there has to be an authentic experience within the context of the Eucharistic assembly. And I call the church a Eucharistic assembly because one of the things I think that we miss in modern-day Christianity is the import of the Eucharist or the Thanksgiving meal or communion or the Lord's table, as it's variously called. For 1,500 years, in fact, through the time of Martin Luther, the Eucharist or communion was always considered to be the real presence of Christ. Therefore, within the context of the Church, when you partook of the Eucharist, you were not merely partaking of a memorial or a remembrance, you were partaking of Christ. You are partaking of something that is not merely biological in terms of the elements, but zoetic in terms of spiritual energy that's transformational, because there's a mingling then of the divine and the human energies. Now, when I say mingling, I'm not saying that the divine is somehow or other coalesced with the human. They each retain their own properties. Uh, it, it's like putting a pot in a kiln. The pot takes on the energy or the fire of that kiln, but it doesn't become the fire. It participates in the energies, and those energies are transformational. I mean, you think about the pot becoming red hot, and someone coming in contact with that pot is also affected by it. The same thing is true when you partake of the divine energies that are offered to us 
through the Thanksgiving meal, through the real presence of Christ. And I have the temerity or the boldness to say this because, again, this was the belief of the Church right through the time of Martin Luther. And I think that it is arrogant for us in the 21st century to suddenly say what the Church believed for 1,600 years is no longer valid in the present. It is valid, and it's not only valid, it's transformational. But this is only one, it is the chief one, but it is only one of the graces by which we can experience not just salvation, but sonship. So salvation is much more than people ever thought it could be. It's not being merely saved from sin, it's being saved for sonship, to be divinely adopted sons and daughters of God. So forgiveness becomes the precondition for God's greater gift, and that gift is a gift that will last beyond our death. It's the gift of divine life. And all of this, and it would take uh, some explanation, as I do in the book, but all of this gets back to anthropology. The fact that God in the Garden of Eden created Adam um, in the genesis of his life, meaning that just as a child has potential and will grow to be an adult, so Adam is created so that he can grow and develop and become more and more like God, excluding participation in the essence of God. We can participate in the energies of God, but not in the essence of God. We can never become what God is by nature, but we can ascend the uh, the mountain of Eden, as it were, to partake of the tree of life, and that tree of life is now available to us through the medicine of immortality that I just described with respect to the Eucharist, but the other graces that are supplied to the Church. You write that we cheat ourselves of real truth and we elevate the message above the messenger. And that seems to me to be what you're describing, that truth alone is not sufficient to experience and enjoy all that God intends for us in that um, the, the truth that is revealed is in order that we might enjoy the kind of intimate relationship that you've been describing, that authentic relationship. Yeah, well, you just nailed it. I mean, deification is far greater than knowing about God as a logical truth proposition. It's the experience of life and all attempts to understand the Christian message from a solely rational perspective remain partial and inadequate. And and this is the message that I'm trying to get through in the book. But one of the things that I do in the book uh, is 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 I, I make sure to point out that there has to be an answer to the Lord's high priestly prayer that we all may be as one, which is to say, before I had my own experience, which which really started quite a number of years ago, but it's been progressive, I was still a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, and I have discovered one thing through my life as a Christian, uh, particularly in Christian ministry, that God has his people in many, many different places and in many different stages of growth and stages of deification. And so one of the things I do in the book is I call for fusion, which is to say that the Church continues to fissure, but I'm looking for an answer to the Lord's high priestly prayer that we all may be as one. Jesus prayed that prayer, and then he says, so that the world might believe that you sent me. 
Now, when we think about oneness within the body of Christ, which is so fractured, we think that's an impossible dream. But who are we as specks of dust to question the one who created that dust? Christ prayed the Lord's high priestly prayer chronicled in John chapter 17, and we need to work towards fusion within the body of Christ and, 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 and in that sense, learn together. So it's not a point of me saying, look, I've written this book, I've come to a knowledge that most people don't have, an experience that most... No, it's not that at all. It's growing together in love and grace and goodness and in the glory of God. Mm. Well, the book, once again, is titled Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life, written by my guest, Hank Hanegraaff, also known as the Bible Answer Man. I find it absolutely fascinating, and you're right. I think you buy one book, but you get two books in the process that give a, a full picture of the abundant life that we are called to, uh, that, that begins with an understanding and regard for truth, but... Um, develops into a much deeper relationship and walk with God. Thank you so much for your efforts in the book, but also for being with us here tonight. Well, thanks for the interview. It's always a pleasure to be with a professional. And when someone interviews you, you can always tell the difference between a good interview and one that's not not so good. And you are definitely a professional, so it's a pleasure being on with you. Well, thank you so much. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Once again, the book is titled Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. Really an interesting um, uh, chronicle of the... The softening, if you will, of the Bible Answer Man. So anyway, a great book. Uh, Thomas Nelson is the publisher. Want to mention one thing before we go to a break. News and traffic at the top of the hour. Going to be at Pioneer Courthouse Square, the corner of Southwest Broadway and Yam Hill from 11 to noon tomorrow. Ringing the bell for the Salvation Army. If you happen to be in the downtown area, come by and say hello. You might even pick up lunch. There's some uh, food carts right next to where we're going to be, I understand. So check that out and come along and uh, support the efforts of the Salvation Army. That's tomorrow from 11 to noon on the corner of Southwest Broadway and Yam Hill. It's uh, one of the corners of the Pioneer Courthouse Square. Our goal is to try to raise $1,000. We're going to do the best that we can and hope to see some of you there as well. All right, coming up in the second hour of today's program, we're going to talk with Thomas Jipping. We'll talk about the um, Beckett Fund. They have a new Religious Freedom Index that's just recently been released. We'll also talk with Michael Allen Harrison. Christmas at the Old Church in its 29th year opens this Friday with a fundraiser for transitional youth and 23 opportunities to hear this great uh, tradition here in the Portland area. News and traffic up next. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. In this hour, we'll talk with Thomas Jipping. He is deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about a, a religious freedom index study by the Beckett Fund, the first of its kind. That's somewhat different from previous studies that indicate where we are as a nation with regard to religious freedom. He'll join us to talk about that in our next segment. And then we'll hear from Michael Allen Harrison, his Christmas at the Old Church is coming up, and uh, in fact, the first performance is this Friday night, and it will benefit uh, one of our friends here at KPDQ, Um, so we'll tell you all the important details about that when he joins us later this hour. We'll also be giving away a couple pair of tickets to his uh, Christmas at the Old Church, so listen up for your opportunity to win those tickets.
Well, President Trump signed an executive order on Wednesday that would cut federal funds to colleges and universities that don't curb anti-Semitism against Jewish students. Well, Trump's new order is set to hit the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement head on and will invoke Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to fight anti-Semitism rhetoric on college campuses, labeling Judaism as a nationality as well as a religion and calling on federally funded agencies to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism in cases of discrimination. The president said during a Hanukkah reception at the White House, this is my message to universities. If you want to accept the tremendous amount of federal funding you get every year, you must reject anti-Semitism. Well, his executive order came a day after two people opened fire inside a Jewish supermarket in New Jersey City, New Jersey, yesterday. The shootout left six people dead, including the shooters, three bystanders, and New Jersey police detective Joseph Seals, who was shot in the head and upper arm at nearly... Um, at a nearby cemetery before the suspects took off for the kosher supermarket. The mayor said late Tuesday that the market was targeted, but officials noted that investi- investigators rather were not prepared to elaborate on the motive behind the incident. That has since been filled out somewhat, and uh, anti-Semitic writing has been uh, uncovered. While addressing the violence in New Jersey, the president said that Americans mourned with one heart for those who died in the shooting and vowed to combat amp- anti-Semitism violence uh, in this country. With one voice we vowed to crush anti-Semitism wherever and whenever it appears. Well, the president's executive order drew bipartisan praise from David uh, Crone, the chief of staff of former Senator Harry Reid, saying, I know people are going to criticize me for saying this, but I have to give credit where credit is due. We're in a pretty sad time where you can't just give credit when it's due. Uh, it doesn't mean you endorse everything an individual says, but you give credit for something that's done right. Well, the Trump administration has received praise from both sides of the aisle, but also had critics saying the new executive order violated free speech rights. Jeremy Ben-Ami, the president of J Street, a left-leaning group, blasted the measure as having a chilling effect on free speech and a crackdown on campus critics of Israel. A pro- this is almost laughable when you consider uh, that uh, many of these uh, students on college campuses don't want to be triggered by having to hear something they find unpleasant. A pro-Palestinian organization accused the president of trying to silence Palestinian rights activism by equating opposition to Israeli treatment of Palestinians with anti-Semitism. Israeli apartheid is a very hard product to sell in America, they say. Well, Jewish Coalition National Chairman Norm Coleman, a former Republican senator from Minnesota, said the executive order will have a real and positive impact in protecting Jewish college students from anti-Semitism. Sadly, every day, Jewish students on college campuses face outrageous attacks on their Jewish identity and beliefs, he said. The rapid increase in such incidents in recent years is a great concern. Christians United for Israel, the largest pro-Israel organization in the nation, thanked the president and Jared Kushner for doing what Congress could not do as they failed to pass the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act. Meanwhile, a New York high school is denying a 14-year-old student from forming a student club at her school because it is religious. Ketchum High School freshman Daniela Barca has repeatedly requested a form to, uh, uh, rather, to form a religious club at her school, who repeated, um, whose repeated rejection of the school's request constitutes a purposeful violation of the Equal Access Act of 1984, according to the religious freedom law firm that sent a letter to the school on Wednesday. Sometimes I feel like I'm the only 
only Christian at my school, and I thought others might feel the same way, Barca said in a statement. So I wanted to start a club at school so we can support each other in our beliefs. I hope the superintendent lets me start the club and does whatever it takes to make sure religious clubs are treated like all other clubs, end quote. This is the 14-year-old. Well, Daniela Barca tried to start the Christian club, but was denied. Um, Keisha Russell, a First Liberty Institute lawyer representing her, said the school officials engaged in purposeful, intentional religious discrimination against Daniela for months. We hope this school district ends its clearly unlawful behavior and protects the religious liberty of every student in all its schools. Well, last summer, Barca approached a teacher about wanting to start a Christian student group at the high school um, that year. When she submitted the required application after school um, started, she says she was told the school at first lost her application before later finding it. The principal denied her request, suggesting the school could not support a religious club like it uh, did the other secular clubs. Well, Barca and her father appealed to the assistant principal who suggested the club could not be recognized to gather and talk about spreading the hope of Jesus unless it modified its viewpoint to something more generic and couldn't limit it to Christian faith. Well, throughout the process, Barca and her father presented several district officials with the Equal Access Act, but the officials ignored the law and still denied her request, despite her petition that the school was violating her right to equal access. Well, as the U.S. Supreme Court explained, religious clubs must be afforded the same recognition Recognition, access, and rights as other non-curricular clubs. First Liberty's letter to Superintendent Jose Carrion uh, states, well, the um, Central School District did not uh, respond, and we're still waiting for an answer to this particular young woman's uh, question and uh, request for an opportunity to meet with other believers. And an atheist Grinch organization has bullied an Oklahoma school district into telling third grade students that they cannot participate in a live nativity scene during their school's annual Christmas production. Liberty Council sent a letter to the Edmond Public School Superintendent after Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus were dropped from the Chisholm Elementary School concert after school officials received a threatening letter from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. The um, Freedom From Religion Foundation claims that the school's live nativity would violate the U.S. Constitution uh, were false and simply made to frighten the school district into compliance. Liberty Council is... um offering pro bono defense if the school chooses to resume a live nativity in the school Christmas program. Liberty Council founder and chairman Matt Staver said the so-called freedom from religion atheist group continually bullies and threatens people every Christmas, and that includes even children. This organization mocks Christianity and does not seem to know what the Constitution means. I hope this school district will not cave to their threats and continues to allow these children to celebrate Christ's birth in their school production. Liberty Council is a nonprofit litigation and education organization. They also work on policy advancing religious freedom. We'll continue to follow that story. Well, Merriam-Webster announced uh, yesterday that the word they, uh, they uh, was its, um, that sounds odd, they was, because they is supposed to be a singular, although it's a plural, was its word of the year for 2019, mainly due to the uh, news it garnered as a uh, term used by individuals, singular, uh, who identify as gender nonconforming. Well, in an announcement, Merriam-Webster said uh, they was the most looked up word this year, with the dictionary company noting that the word saw a 313% increase in lookups in 2019 compared to last year. English famously lacks a gender-neutral singular pronoun, maybe because people only come in two of them. 
uh, to correspond neatly with singular pronouns like everyone or someone. And as a consequence, they has been used for this purpose for over 600 years, Merriam-Webster explained. More recently, though, they has also been used to refer to one person whose gender identity is non-binary by choice, a sense that is increasingly common in published, edited uh, text as well as social media and in daily personal interactions between English speakers, sometimes by force, and failure to do so can cost you your job. Merriam-Webster went on to note that the non-binary use of they was added to their dictionary in September and highlighted multiple news items fostering searches for the word. Congressman uh, Pramila Jayapal, a Democrat from Washington State, revealed in uh, April during a House Judiciary Committee hearing on the Equality Act that her child is gender non-conforming and uses they, the announcement added. Singer Sam Smith announced in September that he now uses they and them as pronouns, and the American Psychological Association's blog officially recommended that singular they, which is plural, be preferred in professional writing over he or she when the reference is to a person whose gender is unknown, even though they are clearly one or the other, or to a persons who prefer they, Merriam-Webster continued. Another top search was the Latin phrase quid pro quo, a legal term that means something for something that was frequently used in news reports on efforts to impeach President Donald Trump. Other words on Merriam-Webster's list of top searches include impeach, crawdad, egregious, clemency, the, they're looking up the, okay, snitty, some words I can't even pronounce, um, and I'm not sure what they mean, so I probably should not repeat them. Nick Adams, director of transgender representation at GLAAD, celebrated the announcement by Merriam-Webster as evidence of increased acceptance of individuals who identify as non-binary. Well, I'm not sure it represents that, but it uh, is a rather interesting finding nonetheless. In October, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in three cases centered on whether the Civil Rights Act of 1964 applies to gender identity and sexual orientation. One of the cases, Harris Funeral Homes versus Equality Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, we've talked about that some months ago, centered on whether a Christian funeral home operator could lawfully fire an employee who refused to wear clothing that corresponded with their biological sex, having agreed to do so at the time of hire. In March, Jamie Shoup, the first man in the U.S. to be legally recognized as non-binary came out against that gender identity, calling it a sham. In an interview with the Christian Post earlier this year, Shoup gave a warning to young people who identify as non-binary or gender non-conforming, saying, I understand that you are reluctant to take the advice of older people and would prefer to test things out yourself, but you can't walk this harm back. You only have one body. You only have one reproductive system. Please don't ruin it chasing the fantasy that you are something other than your biological sex. Shoup said, while your suffering is real, a gender transition is not the answer to your problems. Right now, there is no reward for being the person who resists succumbing to gender um, dysphoria. That's going to change, and you should be proud to be part of that change. Again, having lived for many decades, Jamie Shoup, uh, a man who became a female um, or non-binary, came out against the gender identity, calling it a sham. While you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to hear from Thomas Jipping, Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese uh, III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about findings on a Beckett Fund Religious Freedom Index. We'll also hear from Michael Allen Harrison, Christmas at the Old Church, coming up. 23 performances beginning this Friday supporting transitional youth. More on that when he joins us later in the program. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is a leading nonprofit law firm, and they defend religious freedom. Well, they took an innovative approach to evaluate the current state of religious freedom in America. Well, here to uh, talk with us about it, because he wrote about it, is Thomas Jipping. He's the deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Well, you wrote about the Beckett Fund uh, for Religious Liberties um, new study or index in the Daily Signal. Can you tell us a little bit about the Beckett Fund and what this index was designed to tell us? Sure. The the Beckett Fund is actually one of the leading uh, law firms that defends religious freedom, the the religious freedom of all Americans, all faiths, uh, and, and they've been in the courts for many, many years, all the way to the Supreme Court. And, you know, the things are changing a lot on that front. But And they can tell with the kinds of cases that actually get to court. So mm-hmm. um, there's different ways of, of assessing the state of religious freedom. A lot of that depends on what you understand religious freedom to be. Some of the approaches, though, can be a little bit misleading because they, they really rely on statistics. And that's not really the essence of religious freedom. So it caught my eye when when Beckett did this religious freedom index because it's based on polling, but it's also based on uh, polling about uh, six different dimensions, uh, substantive dimensions of religious freedom to get a sense for what's happening uh, across America today. It's a really interesting approach. It's different than what most other organizations have taken. And it's the kind of thing that can provide input for possible uh, changes in legislation if that's needed or or uh, different approaches to what Beckett does in the courts, this kind of thing. So it's really, really a creative way of assessing a very fast changing area of American life. Now, one of the differences between, as you wrote in the Daily Signal, between this uh, approach and what we've seen for the most part, this is not an assessment that focuses on government actions. This actually asks people what their impressions are, what their uh, views are with regard to religious liberty. So that gives us a view of a different aspect of the landscape, if you will. It, it really does. I mean, obviously, government policy has a lot to do with religious freedom. Religious freedom is guaranteed by the Constitution and by various state and federal laws. But I think the experience of religious freedom, kind of day-to-day, when it comes to practicing your faith, when it comes to interacting with your community, uh, so it's not so much the, the formal structure of religious freedom, I don't think, but I, as I looked at the study, it was really more about that practical experience of it, and that's one of the reasons why it's a, it's a really unique way of looking at it. You write in your uh, column, uh, for example, that the index asked five questions about religious pluralism, such as practicing religion, in daily life without fear of discrimination or harm. And it showed an average of 80% support for religious pluralism. But as you refine the question, there are some differences, for example, in the way uh, certain segments of the population view religious uh, pluralism or religious freedom in general. Can you uh, walk us through a few of their findings? Well, that, that's a very interesting one, because I think um, one of the, probably the most cutting-edge 
sort of area of religious conflict in the United States today involves that question of, uh, for example, when someone's constitutional right to exercise that religion, uh, can, you know, uh, collides with a civil or statutory right to be free from discrimination. You see these cases involving uh, like bakers or photographers or florists or filmmakers, uh, and then you have state laws that require them to participate if they're going to uh, help out at weddings, for example, that they have to do same-sex weddings as well as traditional weddings, which then, of course, can, can violate their religious freedom. And that's, that's going on today. That's in the courts all over the country. And so people's attitudes toward that kind of balance, um, you know, when, when you exercise your faith in ways that perhaps then can uh, conflict or, or inconvenience someone else, you know, what happens? Uh, we're, we're used to thinking in really all-or-nothing terms, but those are the real situations that go on in daily life. And uh, sometimes they can result in, in court cases that go all the way to the Supreme Court, but a lot of times not. And so getting a, getting a sense for what people's perception is, how they understand how those situations ought to be worked out in daily life is really important. The Religious Freedom Index also explored how Americans value religion and its role in society. And the results there were not uh, very encouraging. Tell us about it. Well, traditionally, and of course, as many of your listeners may know, uh, religious freedom is probably the single most dominant uh, uh, force or factor in um, the founding of our country. In fact, people were coming to North America for that purpose more than a century before America was even founded. And traditionally, uh, people have had, regardless of their specific personal religious beliefs, they've had a a generally positive view of religion as a part of American life. And frankly, uh, historically, uh, they've seen religion as the source of um, potential solutions to various problems. The, The civil rights movement, for example, was motivated by religion and the church. Uh, this kind of thing, and that's changing rapidly. Uh, the, the people's uh, view of religion, even generally in society, is declining rapidly. And I think the the index found uh, more than forty percent of Americans, frankly, think that religion is part of the problems that we face in America today. Uh, that never used to be the case, and it doesn't bode well for the future in the sense that. Um, there are many efforts to take religious freedom and religion per se and to really narrow it down to, you know, maybe worshiping on Sunday or, uh, you know, reading your Bible in private, and that's it. And that is radically different from the way religion and religious freedom have been have really flourished in America, but I think we're heading in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Well, the index also examined the uh, familiar area of church and state. One area in particular um, uh, pointed to the U.S. Constitution that explicitly prohibits any religious test for public office. We've heard some politicians in Washington of late ask questions that would violate that uh, protection. But nonetheless, at least a quarter of Americans say that candidates should be disqualified or blocked from holding public office based on their religious beliefs. 
Yeah, this is very disturbing. Very, uh, and it and it goes a little bit with the the point we were just talking about, which is uh, it, it, until very, until recently, it was never the case that people thought that. Uh, religious persons, or, or if you just happen to have religious faith, that that ought to automatically disqualify you from participating in different areas of American life. Uh, and yet that is where that is the direction that we're heading. There have been very disturbing instances, for example, and I used to work on the Senate Judiciary Committee for 15 years. I worked for Senator Orrin Hatch, and so I observed this kind of stuff firsthand. Uh, you know, senators on the Judiciary Committee asking, ex- you know, specific questions mm-hmm. about judicial nominees, religious beliefs, and and clearly questioning whether whether holding certain religious beliefs should disqualify someone from becoming a federal judge, for example. Uh, not only is that contrary to the Constitution, uh, it, it, it's contrary to the to just a basic notion of a free society. And uh, as I said, it never used to be the case, and this is a very disturbing uh, recent development. Hopefully it's not a trend. Now, the the Religious Freedom Index is based on an online poll. They surveyed a, a representative sample of 1,000 Americans ages 18 and older. It's a relatively small sampling, and the first of what will most likely be a series of similar questions being posed to American citizens. Your thoughts with regard to how well this reflects the, uh, the direction that the nation seems to be going with regard to religious freedom? Well, as I said, this was a, uh, an interesting approach to formulating the questions. They, they weren't um, conventional questions that we've seen in sort of broad national polls before, but delving into these different areas, and you mentioned a few of them, um, very well-crafted questions. I've, I've known the Beckett Fund and the, the folks there for many years, and they're very thoughtful uh, insightful people who have been studying the actual experience of religious mm-hmm. freedom in America for a long time, and um, I think it—I think it gets, starts to get at elements of that 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 previous efforts by others really missed, and I think it it, it can inform us about what's happening in this really fundamental area of our liberty. Well, we'll certainly look forward to the next iteration of this Beckett uh, Fund survey that I expect we'll see in another year or so. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Well, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Again, Thomas Jipping is Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Michael Allen Harrison. Yes, his Christmas at the Old Church is coming up. 23 performances will give you all the important details. And later in the program, we're going to give away a pair of uh, great seats to the concert that's coming up. We'll give you the date, the details, all of that right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I have to tell you, I'm pretty excited because I don't have celebrities in studio that often, but today happens to be one of those days. And with me in studio is Michael Allen Harrison. We're going to be talking about his 2019 Christmas at the Old Church 
um, season. It's a heartwarming holiday tradition here in the Portland metro area. It's one of the favorite events that takes place around this time of year. And uh, Michael Allen Harrison, we're so delighted to have you here. And I think, too, to emphasize that much of your music really contributes to uh, a variety of groups here in the Portland metro area. You really are a local treasure. Well, thank you, Georgina. I mean, I'm just so tickled to be here with you. I haven't seen you in a while, and it's great to see your beautiful face and and uh, talk about the season. You know, the the thing that that uh, I think makes this time of year so special is as we get closer to Christmas Day, we all want to connect. We want to we we, we have an expectation of feeling something really special. And I see the community come together. I, I, I see, you know, I feel this, you know, connection to God gets stronger for everybody. And, um, you know, more than anything, we come together to tap into that feeling, to tap into that source. And and we get to do that at the old church, 23 shows. Oh, yeah, That's exhausting, 23 shows. And yet you bring the same energy to every single one of them. Tell us a yeah. bit about what's going to be in the 2019 season. That begins this Friday. Begins this Friday. And, of course, our opening night is always a, uh, a fundraiser for the transitional youth. And uh, we always love being a part of that and helping out our good friend, Bert Waugh. And... Uh, and every year, I mean, since we started, I mean, this is our 29th season, every show has always featured my my dearest friend, Julianne Johnson, who is just this incredible gospel, jazz, yes. pop, you, you name it, type of singer. She can sing anything. And uh, so Julianne, of course, will be in the show. And we have little kids in the show. We have some of our kids who are in our Play It Forward program, in our, in our piano uh, program that we support here in the local area. And uh, Haley Johnson, who is a former uh, American Idol, uh, she's going to be in the show this year. And I recently met Michael Jackson's guitar player. Her name is Jennifer Batten, and she played for Michael Jackson for like 12 years. She did three world tours and and a Super Bowl. And we hit it off, and I said, how would you like to be in my Christmas show? So I've got a, a world-class celebrity guitar player in the show this year. We rehearsed the other day. She is amazing. And she says, you know, Michael, I've heard about your show for years. I promise to tone it down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she just plays so beautiful. She's, just not, she's not just a rock and roll or pop uh, guitar player. She, she can play anything in this, the sound that she makes in. Her sensibilities as an artist mm-hmm. is, is just remarkable. So we're happy to have her in the show. And uh, and then one of my uh, sons, uh, Tanner, he's a, an incredible violinist. And he's been in Florida for the last four years. And so he's back home for Christmas this oh. year. And so Tanner's going to jump on stage with us. And, and so I'm just really excited about this show. You know, I don't get exhausted. This This show feeds me. I think we all feed each other. And um, so it's so. Ex- I mean, it's just I can't wait. I mean, we're we're just a few days away. And the other thing that's really great: once I open this show, the preparation is all done. Yeah. All the rehearsing is done. All I have to do is drive down to the old church, step on stage, and play the piano, and and just enjoy the moment. And and so I sleep in, and <laughs> I do some Christmas shopping, and you know, I. It feels like more of a normal life to me once we open the show. Well, I know for a lot of people, it's a way to start the season. It's kind of the official start Mm -hmm. of 
uh, focusing on Christmas. What is you're presenting your your music and others who are presenting the music mm-hmm. with you? What's your primary goal in communicating the spirit of Christmas to your audience? You know, uh, I think I touched on it before. I, I think it's just I just all want us to come together um, and feel feel something really special. And and uh, and because there's moments in the show where you can go deep and and you can maybe call call on the angels, you know, say, hey, you know, be here with me, you know, call on those who maybe who have crossed over and aren't with us anymore, you know, to come sit here with me, and um, and then also just be inspired, mm-hmm. you know, um, however you want to be inspired. I mean, music does that. For yes. You. Yeah, music is is the language that that speaks to all of us from birth. This is something that was God given to us at birth. You don't have to know music theory to hear a good piece of music. We all we all hear it together. We understand the language. We don't have to study it. You know, you have to study it to present it yeah. to play it, but to understand it, we're born with it. What a great gift! And so we all get to hear. That message together. Yeah, and share it together. Yeah, and absolutely. Now, as you know, this has been a challenging season for a lot of us. People are Mm -hmm. very um, divisive uh, these days. Coming together in the old church, sitting next to one another, hearing these beautiful uh, Christmas songs being presented in such a beautiful way, uh, I think just calms us and prepares us to reconsider, you know, love for one another and and reconnecting with people as we enter in this very special Mm -hmm. time. Yes, you know, it's... uh, um, you know, one of the things that I bear witness to, you know, being an entertainer, that I I am out there with all sorts of walks of life, mm-hmm. different socioeconomic groups, religions, cultures, races. I mean, you name it. I I am out there, and uh, and I get to share my music with everybody, and I do not witness divisiveness. I always witness togetherness. The device, the devices, the divisiveness. That's an interesting word to say quickly, <laughs> isn't it? Um, you know, I witnessed that in, mostly in the media. You know, and uh, um, and so you know, it, for some reason in that area, the sky is falling, but on the ground, boots where on the ground, live. <laughs> where people actually live, we are out there helping each other. Yeah. And and if and if someone is misbehaving, I also witness good people calling people out and say, "Hey, that's not cool. That's not cool." But also reaching out and giving a hand up and say, "Hey, that's not cool. I I don't like your behavior, but I still love you. Let's talk about it." Well, you've been yeah. such a a tremendous influence in our community, bringing people together. And again, we're talking about the twenty ninth season of the Christmas. At the Old Church, which you have been presenting for 29 years. This 29 is your 29th season, which it's, is pretty incredible. It's, it's incredible. I, this, I can't believe I've, I've, I've been doing it for this long. And it, it's, just a, it's always just a snap of the finger. Yeah. Yeah. Christmas is upon us. Well, the opening night is coming up this Friday, the first of 23 shows that will be presented. Now, uh, the best way for folks to get their tickets, I know we have a link at our website, uh, but the best place to find tickets is to go to Michael um, Harrison. Harrison.com. It's right there on the front page. You don't even have to search anywhere on my website. And uh, you can just Google Michael Allen Harrison's Christmas at the Old Church. It'll pop up. 
and uh, and also you know, not only do you, you can click on the ticket uh, links and everything, but you know I have a wonderful staff member by the name of Peggy, and you go to my website and the number's right there. Call Peggy, you know, and uh, she'll help you I got Peggy's number. Do you mind if yeah, I Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Let's, yeah. let's give you Peggy's number. Yes. 971-256-1848. That's 971-256-1848. Ask for Peggy, and she'll get you hooked up for one of the 23 performances beginning this Friday night uh, with a transitional youth fundraiser. So, again, you've always given back to the community. You've always brought joy to the community. Do you have a favorite song or a favorite part of the concert this year? Well, it's like gosh. asking which one of your kids you like. Yeah, the most. <laughs> you know, I always love a holy night. When Julianne sings a holy night, is it's really special um, for me. Solo piano because uh, I have a new record this year. Uh, the, the new album is called "The Most Wonderful Time of the Year." But I, I did a new rendition of Feliz Navidad ah. in more of a uh, kind of a midnight, almost lullaby style, and it, there's something about it. It's just sparkly and heartwarming and and uh, that's my new favorite this year so, and your yeah. cds will be available at the event oh yeah absolutely all right ladies yeah. and gentlemen you heard it here <laughs> once again michael allen harrison christmas at the old church the tradition continues this is the um, 23rd 29th year 29th there year. are 23 Three shows, shows. Yeah. and you are invited to attend one of them again you can call peggy at 971 971- Two five six eighteen forty eight, or go to michaelallenharrison.com for all the important details. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Next time when we have more time, you need to bring your piano and we'll give you a chance to play a little bit. Would you sing with me? Sure. That would be so wonderful. Absolutely. Let's plan that next time. Okay. That's a date. That would be, wow. Let's do it. <laughs> that would be fun. Okay. Thank you so much for coming. All right. You We're going to take me. a quick break. We'll be back. And by the way, if you didn't get those details, I'll put them on the uh, Facebook page, and you can also find that at kpdq.com. So check that out. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part by Zero Res. Well, as you've just heard, Michael Allen Harrison's Christmas at the Old Church is coming up with the first performance of supporting transitional youth coming up this Friday, the 13th. But there are 23 shows spanning uh, the, 20, uh, the 13th through the 26th. And you can get uh, more information about that at michaelallenharrison.com. But I do want to take a moment and give away two complimentary reserved seats for the uh, for the show and you can pick which date the 13th through the 26th I actually have two pair of these tickets and um yeah, that's right. And I would like to give them away to callers two and three. Callers number two and three. Again, two complimentary reserved seats at the 29th season of Michael Allen Harrison Christmas at the Old Church. The number to call, 800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. Again, the span of performances begins this Friday, December 13th through the 26th at the Old Church. And this will feature not only Michael Allen Harrison, but some of the folks that uh, we have come to enjoy here in the Portland metro area and beyond uh, during these performances. So 
Well, a group of Christian worship artists and faith leaders, including Hillsong Church founder Brian Houston, prayed for President Donald Trump at the White House um, this week. Uh, the musicians and ministry leaders participated in a worship services service rather and visited the Oval Office and the Cabinet Room where they prayed for the president um, and uh, thanked him for doing uh, what he does to help the faith community and religious freedom. Well, attendees included the 65-year-old Houston, Bethel Music founder Brian and Jen Johnson, Grammy nominee Carrie Job. Uh, her husband and many others uh, who were in um, Washington, D.C. for a worship service focused on the need for God to influence uh, what's happening in Washington. Uh, The Vice President Mike Pence was also in attendance for parts of the meeting that included a briefing saying wonderful um, stopping by a worship leader briefing today at the White House. America is a proud nation of of believing Americans of every faith. Well, the event comes after questions were raised in September about whether or not the White House refused to invite the Sydney-based megachurch to uh, Washington. Houston is regarded as uh, Morrison's um, faith mentor. Uh, Houston was investigated for allegations that he failed to report his father's sexual abuse of children in his church. So there's some controversy around that as well. But wrote, here I am at the White House, never say never, Houston said in an Instagram video filmed outside the White House. It's a great honor uh, to meet the President of the United States of America. To me, it's not about politics. It's about the position. And a significant man like the President of the United States um, uh, could certainly have some influence. Houston was also featured in a video posted uh, to the White House's Twitter page. As an Australian, I really believe that we need a strong America in the world. With America strong, the world is a better place. Um, and uh, also, as I mentioned, Nashville-based uh, Job and Carnes, a married couple, were also featured in the video at the White House and so on. This was a time of uh, worship, apparently, and a time of prayer and praise as well. And while there are no celebrities in the kingdom of God, I mean, we have people whose names are familiar to us, whose faces we might know, the product of their talents, whether they're musicians or uh, function in some other areas, are familiar to us in the kingdom of God. We are all on equal footing. God is not more excited about someone with a big name coming to faith than he is someone whose name will never be known outside of uh, his own hearing. But I thought I would bring this uh, up in particular just by way of uh, encouragement. It was an article that appeared in the Christian Post that focused on Blake Shelton, who is a, a country singer, saying that he believes in God more than ever. Now attends church regularly because of his, um, I'm not sure if, I think she's just his girlfriend, but Gwen Stefani. Uh, Blake Shelton is publicly thanking his girlfriend for strengthening his relationship with God and encouraging him to attend church more often. He was speaking to the Tennessean, a local publication, that along with creating music with Stefani, she has also been instrumental in his um, rededication to his faith. I believe in God more now than I ever have in my life, he told the newspaper. The biggest part of that is just how Gwen came into my life and now our relationship. If you take God out of it, it doesn't make sense. If you put God into it, everything that's happened with us makes sense, he added. Now, the couple who are both divorced from their ex-spouses, which is a whole nother story, began dating in 2015 while working as judges on season nine of NBC's The Voice. Currently working on season 17, the couple announced that they are um, debuting a new single later this month titled Nobody But You irrelevant to the story, but this was one of those songs uh, where uh, the more I heard it, the more I fell in love with it, said uh, Shelton. I also realized how important it is for me and where I am in my life. Well, in his interview with the Tennessean, 
the CMA winner revealed that Stefani encouraged him to begin attending church on a regular basis. That is what inspired him to turn a page in his life, he confessed. While Shelton's relationship with God was strengthened this year, he admitted he still drinks and curses more than he should. However, his new music has been loaded with songs about his faith, including his number one country hit, God's Country. In another song titled, Jesus Got a Tight Grip, he talks about his actions and God's love. Jesus got a tight grip on my soul, and he ain't letting go. He ain't letting go. The devil reaches out, but he can't grab hold because Jesus got a tight grip on my soul. Might have a little rust in my uh, on my halo, but when I'm gone, I know where I'll go. Uh, Jesus got a tight grip on my soul. He ain't letting go. Just an encouraging story about uh, the unlikely uh, potential of someone who is considered a celebrity coming to faith in Christ and a deeper appreciation for and regard for his need for a savior. Well, taking a look at uh, the next couple of days of this week, tomorrow we're going to talk with Gary Thomas. He's the author of When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. You might want to take notes. I was uh, reading an article recently, in fact, I'll try to bring that up uh, maybe tomorrow on the program as well, that people are really lamenting the fact that they're going to spend time with family, and the average was four hours. They could put up with one another for four hours, but after that, it was just too much. Now, in some cases, there's a genuine toxic relationship that should be uh, uh avoided. But in other cases, we just have very little tolerance for one another, which is is a sad scenario. Anyway, we're going to talk about when to walk away, finding freedom from toxic people on Thursday. And then, as I've mentioned earlier, Friday is my mother's 89th birthday. As I've mentioned before, she lives with uh, Dan Rice and me, and it's been a a real honor and is a real honor to have her in our home. I take that, um, that opportunity very seriously. She and I engage in conversation every day. I find out what she's eaten, how her day has gone, if she had conversations with other people, what her fears are, what she's thinking about. And we've had such rich conversation about the meaning of life beyond our um, our productive years in which we're raising children or earning money and uh, just rejoicing in the value that God places on every life from beginning to end. So I'm going to take Friday, her 89th birthday and the 25th anniversary of uh, donating a kidney to her to celebrate her life. So I'm going to hang out with she and my sister all day on Friday. And then on Saturday, we're going to be hosting a tea for her and um, the dwindling number of her very close long-term uh, friends uh, at our home. So that's gonna, what's going to happen on Friday. So I will be away, and I'm not even entirely sure what James has in mind, but just to give you a, a heads up, that's what's coming. Uh, once again, want to remind you that uh, Michael Allen Harrison's Christmas at the Old Church begins on Friday. You can go to Michael Allen, and that's A-L-L-E-N, MichaelAllenHarrison.com for all the important details about these 23 series of opportunities to uh, enjoy his music and that of others who are well-known in our community and others who are lesser known, but great musicians. Uh, so you have a good number of opportunities at the Old Church, which is a really nice, intimate um, uh, venue for that kind of a holiday concert. So uh, make note of that. And this Sunday, of course, um, we have our big concert coming up um, as well. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.